We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Dang. Hey, Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Hi. Things are getting serious. Are they? Yeah, we're coming at you. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't it's sure. Always, exactly. It always feels serious at, at, at that moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Usually you, you get the Jonah bumps, but yeah. yeah. We are, uh, we're coming at you live from the Luft in Bismarck, North Dakota. It's a pretty sweet rooftop bar here, and uh, they've been pretty wonderful to us during the three months that it isn't snowing. I agree. <laughs> I, I love it. A big thanks to everyone for being here with us, and thanks to everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes or Spotify. It really means a lot for a lot to us, and I think a lot of people who might want to check us out go there, and when they see good things, they might give us a listen. So, Don, I'm kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest Murder? Well, I don't know, because Jonah is the, the one that puts these in for every single episode, and so sometimes he makes me insult myself, and sometimes he's really kind to me, so we will we will see all right, five stars from DVDBC. I'm sorry, JDVDBC. Yes, we talk about murder at work. I like it. That's me too. Sounds like me too. <laughs> me too. Don't we all? <laughs> I'm such a fan of true crime and absolutely love hearing about these crazy cases that happen so close to me. I listen to your podcast while cleaning and taking care of my kids. Also me too. With my earbuds in so as not to scar my children. That is not me. I think it makes me a better parent. I'm looking forward to your event on Thursday at the Luft. You ha- you'll have a large group of us NICU nurses there. Ooh, shout out okay, to the Okay, so raise nurses. your hand if that's you. Oh, right cool. On. Yay. That's cool. awesome. Um, as, a, as, a personal, as a personal thing, my, my firstborn was stillborn, so obviously ended in the, in the NICU for a little bit. But then my, uh, my daughter spent 11 days in the NICU. So you guys just, I knew I liked you. That's great. Aww. So yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for what you do. Seriously. Uh, it, it's still me. I still have to talk. Um, okay. So JMB 6115, five stars. Love hearing local stories. My cousin who lives in Minot recommended this pod to me. I am a travel nurse. We have a nurse theme. I like it. Big nurse theme tonight going on. (laughs) I am a travel nurse. So I drive hundreds of miles every week and listen to a lot of podcasts. I am pretty picky about the story delivery and voices on podcasts. And I have tried dozens of other podcasts that were recommended to me. I just couldn't listen to a lot of them due to their monotone voices or boring dialogue. This is where you guys shine. You tell the stories well. Your voices and chemistry are great, and the content is not overly drawn out or opinionated. I am so impressed that we have a well-written and thoughtfully delivered local podcast. Great job, guys. You rank right up there with the big names like, I can't even say them. That's ridiculous. That's just too sweet. Crime junkie, true crime obsessed, serial, and others. So that's very Whoa. that's very kind, and I'm I'm blushing. Well, that gave me the yeah. Jonah bumps. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. A, it's official. So thank you. It's, it's the first time it's happened here. 
um, so far. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. And a big thank you to uh, Premier Chiropractic for sponsoring this episode of Midwest Murder. They have five chiropractics to meet your needs. And the magic of what they do, it comes down to combining all the different aspects of patient care from the uh, using manual therapy techniques and making the, the adjustments to bring all of your proper joint movements back. At Premier Chiropractic in Minot, they also incorporate exercise and they choose techniques that will best fit each individual patient. So you can experience the difference at Premier Chiropractic with locations in Minot, Kenmare, and Stanley. They also have a specialization in prenatal, pediatrics, and athletes. Find them at their website, premierchiropracticnd.com, or on Facebook, Premier Chiropractic ND. You can also support the show financially when you buy us a hot dish at www.buymeacoffee.com slash midwestmurder. Big shout out to everybody who's done that with us so far. Our story predominantly takes place in 1986 and 1987. As we all know, the 80s were a pretty wild-ass decade. And for those with a sharp ear, all of the music during our pre-show today came from these years. Style was strictly defined by a proper combination of big hair, glam makeup, neon, ripped knees, muscle shirts, leggings, punk rock, and mullets. Being a nerd wasn't quite cool yet. Pound puppies, Teddy Ruxpin, G.I. Joe Commandos, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were the best-selling toys. I never got a Teddy Ruxpin, and I'm still a little bitter about it. I had three of the four there. Oh, of course you did. The Challenger shuttle exploded. I don't know why I just shamed you for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, like I was spoiled. Oh, that's that's your fault, not mine, I guess. I mean, I was I was an only child yet. So prior to that, I had no sisters yet, so maybe I was. Right. The Challenger shuttle exploded 73 seconds after launch. It was the same year the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl blew up. In those years, the Oprah Winfrey show, Full House, DuckTales, Unsolved Mysteries, and Married with Children all made their debut. That is a big year in TV. A couple of years, yeah, 86, that's, 87 that's like, there, yeah. You know, Oprah, you get in everything, and then, I mean, Full House, and then, yeah, I mean, DuckTales, like, come on. And then Robert Stack, I wanted to be married to that guy. I loved him, even at the tender age of young. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. It's, that, it's that hypnotic voice. <laughs> it is. The Bangles, Walk Like an Egyptian, was pounding the airwaves as the number one song with Madonna, Genesis, Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, Whitney Houston, a slew of one-hit wonders, and of course, who could forget the Beastie Boys finally teaching the world you gotta fight for your right to party. It's true. It's I true. really took that seriously through high school, so yeah. thanks, guys. Big, I good don't, advice. Uh, I, don't ever, I don't ever share... I don't like share a lot of memories on, on Facebook, but there is one that I share every single year, and it's my oldest daughter who... Um, you know, at, at the age of four or five, probably, maybe, yeah, probably four. She's she is right. she is singing all about her uh, right to party, and uh, I don't know. I may be failing as a mother in other areas, but that one I got locked up. Dialed so, it in. Yeah, that's good. Some of the top VHS rentals were Short Circuit, Top Gun, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Back to School, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Uh, Hills. What am I here? <laughs> Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Aliens, one of my personal favorites. Aretha Franklin becomes the first female artist inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In, in cool. 1986. It was 86 or 87. 80, this covers right. those two years, yep. But whatever. It was like, yeah. you know, a million years too late, underway but there. Fine. Whatever. United States President Ronald Reagan delivered his famous speech at Berlin Wall in West Berlin. Mr. Gorbachev, tear, tear down, down that, that wall. wall. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd be remiss if I didn't include this last one since we're a true crime podcast. The first criminal was convicted using DNA evidence. His name was Robert Melius, and it was in England. Interesting. That's That's a good fact. At the start of the decade, Ken and Kathy hit it off after their first date. He was 20, and she was 17. In spite of the age gap, the two shared much in common. Rough childhoods, raising younger siblings. They were close with their grandparents, hardly dated, the oldest in their family. Love blossomed quickly. Kathy was eager to move out of her parents' house. By age 19, she was a mother and living with Ken. Ken worked full-time, but eventually, financial pressures had them renting a small house on Effie Street in Grand Rapids from Kathy's mom. Kathy's life has been terrible, Ken thought, and he wanted to make it right for her. According to Kathy, when she was a teenager, she dated a boy named David, but then later found out David was a girl actually named Debbie who likes to dress up as a boy. Kathy claims David slash Debbie sexually exploited her as a teenager. One one second. Grand Rapids, Minnesota? Michigan. Michigan. You got it. Wait, is there a Grand Rapids, Minnesota? I don't think so. I don't think so. There's a something Rapids, Michigan though. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we were in the right location. Kathy gained more than 100 pounds while pregnant, weighing over 400 pounds at the time of her child's birth. Her insatiable hunger after giving birth for food extended to books. She read and ate constantly, consuming the works of everyone from Stephen King to William Shakespeare and McDonald's to Taco Bell. True crime, fiction, burgers, historical literature, tacos, nonfiction, and Doritos and Pepsi. Her taste was boundless. Ken and Kathy were just really bad eaters. Neither of them cooked or did any shopping. Kathy outright refused to shop or cook or work or clean. So Ken brought home fast food and their cramped house was always messy. Kathy socially isolated herself. She became an expert at chess and at high-level crossword puzzles and strategic board games. She was a poor sport who relished in crushing lesser opponents while openly mocking their lack of skill. Kathy once used their 13-month-old baby as a human shield against a foul ball during a baseball game. What? That, yep. Fortunately, Ken caught the foul ball before it beamed his baby. During their years thank, of... Thank you, Ken. I, I mean... Ken got in, he got in there. Good, good reactions there. During their years of marriage, she feuded with her own child treating their daughter like an annoying little sister. Kathy was a dominating and controlling mother, and it didn't work with her defiant, curious child. It led to a lot of confined stress in their one-bedroom home. Kathy was a master of mind games, and she toyed with Ken, talking dirty to him on the phone, getting him all horned up, only to be asleep and grumpy when he got home. Kathy did this regularly. She loved books, eating, and talking dirty, but hated housework, cooking, and actual sex. Well, I was going to say, don't shame her for, you know, it, it's not a mind game if you're doing the dirty talk and then you fall asleep when you get home, okay? Like, oh. I was, I mean, sometimes the day has just been long. Okay? Pretty consistent in okay. Kathy's case, though. Okay. She, she, there's an intent behind it. And it's, I know that yeah. she held her baby up as a shield. I'm just trying to give her the benefit of the doubt so far, okay? It's, I keep stacking some benefit of the doubt on her once. Okay, okay. Ken loved Kathy, but he didn't always like her. 
She had strange habits like asking specific questions, then suddenly changing topics before getting an answer. And it often seemed to Ken that her feelings were not manipulated by external stimulation. In what, what, one, do you, what do you mean by that? What, you, like, give an example. Like, out, outside people, what outside people felt didn't make an impact on how she felt internally. So, okay. no external stimulation okay. could change how she felt. In one of her more creative plots, Kathy had several different women call Ken over the course of a few weeks, claiming to be women he met previously. Ken had no idea who they were, but the women always had just enough critical information that Ken started questioning himself. Kathy's goal? To see what Ken was like behind her back. Oh, okay. She kind of sucks already. Okay. I'm sorry. That's... Kathy's weight never bothered Ken. He loved his wife. Her intelligence was attractive. She had a pretty face and alluring blue-green eyes. In 1986, things finally felt like they were going in the right direction. Nearly seven years into their marriage, it felt like a miracle when she finally got a job and actually kept it, earning a reasonable $3.55 an hour at the Alpine Manor Nursing Home. She took out a loan and bought a big Chevrolet love truck. L-U-V. Oh, Ken, look. It's just so cute. She had a tendency to draw out the last word in her sentences. Kathy came out of her shell and found a whole new world within the lives of co-workers at Alpine Manor. Shop talk, gossiping, stories. She came home and told Ken everything. Month by month, the gossip became more juicy. Over time, It seemed to Ken that everyone working at Alpine Manor was gay or bisexual, and his wife obsessed over their preferences and habits. $3.66 is $9.91 today. Yeah, $3.55. Yeah, that's a good conversion. I don't know why I put $66, but yeah, okay. This put Kathy Wood on a crash course with Gwendolyn Gale Graham. Gwen lived for experiences. At age 17, she started an on-and-off-again relationship with an older woman, Fran. By 22, she traveled along the West Coast, East Coast, built brick homes as a missionary in Africa, delivered pizzas, worked for a newspaper in Texas, ran a cash register in Flint, and managed a Highway Dixie quick stop. In their years together, Fran saw Gwen as both cute and fierce, confident and insecure, desperate and assured. There was never an in-between. Living in Tyler, Texas, Gwen was just sort of passing time when she saw an ad to become a paramedic in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Coincidentally, Fran was now living there and said it was great. Opportunity, it seemed, was pulling Gwen north to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids at this time is a highly devout, conservative region. It was not uncommon to see an entire family bow their heads in prayer before a meal at a public restaurant. A long-running joke in the community was that you couldn't even buy root beer at the gas station because it had the word beer in it. Gwen was tragically accident-prone. She was left nearsighted with an overactive thyroid after crashing her motorcycle at 17. She was hit by a car and knocked unconscious for two days. Her left arm was put back together with plates and screws. In her last accident, in the months before leaving Tyler, Gwen hit a parked car while driving her aunt on an errand. 
The car flipped, and she managed to escape and drag her aunt to safety just before the car burst into flames. Her front teeth had to be replaced before she left for Texas. Did she, did she stop driving after that? <laughs> I, I... No, it was a road trip up to Grand, Grand Rapids. Arriving in 1986, things in Grand Rapids weren't quite as hype as Fran led Gwen to believe. Fran was eight years her senior, and Gwen always looked up to Fran's strength and confidence. But the woman Gwen saw now was a shell. At least there were job opportunities. Gwen settled on a place called Alpine Manor. At the interview, Gwen dressed in a nice short-sleeved shirt, choosing not to hide the circular scars on her arms. They were in orderly rows, 31 in all, 19 on her left arm, 12 on her right. Razor-thin, less apparent scars at various angles also peppered Gwen's arm. When asked, she simply said, quote, My dad had a strange way with discipline. She was hired. Now let me tell you about Alpine Manor. Alpine Manor was a one-story, all-brick nursing home. To me, it looks like the set of an eerie horror movie. Two sections joined by a common ground with a courtyard totaling 207 beds. It was all rooms and hallways with simple numbers and colors. Every room was color-coded, making it easier for patients to remember. There are few smiles and fewer noises. It's cramped, and everyone shuffles along slowly without much expression. The social room has a grand piano, but it's rare to have a resident who can play it. Most of the patients can't chew, so they're eating mush and pureed food. Age and disease have ultimately left many of the residents in a state of incontinence. Furthermore, hostility towards staff is not uncommon. Thus, securing patients with straps is pretty normal. And so in 86, 87, we still weren't yes. doing great with you know, nursing home care and elder care. We hadn't, hadn't taken care of that yet. No, not quite. And birthdays were posted on a community calendar and celebrated with the staff and any family who might join. And usually there was at least one activity each day, like bingo or coloring. Many of the activities were childlike. Friday night was movie night, and residents watched lots of Shirley Temple on VHS. At night, patients wandered the hallways, or ambulated, as the staff called it. They ambulated however possible, with walkers Hanging onto rails or against the walls, staff weaved in and out of ambulating residents, always on the go. There was a waiting list to get in at Alpine Manor, and the nursing home widely considered to be much nicer than roach-infested inner-city care facilities. Their state record was among the best in Michigan. Kathy Wood became queen of the hen house at Alpine Manor. Other employees craved her approval. Kathy's vocabulary was polished, extensive. She knew all the verbal pleasantries. People were swept up by her eloquence, and no one could match wits with Kathy. Every bit of news at Alpine Manor ran through her like a bottleneck. Eager beavers rushed to bring her gossip. Kathy had a well-known approving pet phrase. Oh, you're just so cute. It's going to haunt me, I feel like. I, I, yeah. Oh, Don, you're just so cute. That's not funny. 18-year-old Don Mayo, a young female employee, fell in love with Kathy. Don thought Kathy was the most intelligent person she'd ever met, and Kathy cherished the admiration. As Kathy's work life grew, 
Her marriage continued suffering. She had no relationship whatsoever with her daughter Jamie, and she didn't really care. Kathy hated kids, even her own. Ken turned to his Christian faith and, under the advice of his pastor, began working toward forgiveness with his wife, praying for her and for their marriage. At some point in 1986, he apologized for being mean and not treating her as good as she deserved. Initially, it seemed to work, but Kathy's mood swings had grown more polarizing, and Ken simply didn't understand where it all came from. Certainly, the strained relationship with her mother contributed, but there was something more happening. She kept telling him she was very bad. Ken, I'm bad. You, you don't know how very bad I am. Just out of the blue, she'd say things like, I'm a terrible person. I'm a very dirty person. When he pressed her to elaborate, she offered vague stories that didn't make any sense. Ken decided years prior that his wife had a fuzzy perception of good and evil, a person with little use for morals who couldn't face minor flaws, let alone their own major transgressions. For his 28th birthday, Kathy made Ken a shocking birthday gift offer, a threesome and a trip to the porno shop called The Velvet Touch. It's a hell of a... I mean, happy birthday, Happy birthday. You want to do a threesome, me and a chick? It doesn't sound like they had much of a sex life other than her, you know, teasing and then falling asleep. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was taken aback because their, so, sef, their sex life was practically non-existent. And a few years prior to this, she wouldn't even leave the house. Now, threesome for your birthday. Let's go. I feel, I feel like that's, that is zero to 60. Like, yeah. I mean, whew, okay, well, well, where the hell is this going to go? Well, okay. Kathy's tales from the workplace grew... Bizarre in Ken's mind. There was so much sexual drama at Alpine Manor. Employees sleeping with each other, having affairs, threesomes of people revealing they were secretly gay. To Ken, it sounded like Alpine Manor was the set of a kinky soap opera. Frankly, the name does too. I'm not going to lie. It absolutely does. Yeah. Kathy started going to the bar more frequently. Ken was never invited. Then Kathy reported a resident was sexually abused. This was followed by weekly mandatory meetings to determine who did it. But the mandatory meetings never stopped, and Kathy wasn't coming home. It was all too much for Ken. He told Kathy he was going to leave her. But Ken was always a few steps behind his wife. Her plans were already in development, and on Labor Day, Kathy told Ken it was over. He had to get out. Ken slept in his car that night. He figured things would be okay the next day. They weren't. Kathy was serious. Ken brought their daughter to Grandma's house and got a hotel room. But the AC wasn't working, so Ken drove back to the house for a fan. Imagine Ken's surprise to discover Kathy at home with another woman. 18-year-old Don Mayo. Kathy was covered in hickeys. Don Mayo looked like she was straight from the pages of a punk rock magazine. Ears pierced more times than Ken could count. Her nose was pierced, and there was a chain connecting it all. Seven years of marriage. It might not have been great, but Ken loved his wife, and this revelation, while shocking, would hardly be the worst of it. Well, and first of all, how old is Kathy at this point? Kathy, 25, 26, I think. Oh, so not that big of a not that big of an nope. age difference. And, and, okay, so... When you're describing her, it's like the 80s, right? And, Total and, 80s, yes. And, and 
nose piercings, as I point to mine, were they were like a big deal. You know, they super had, wild. I mean, yeah. So today it's not a big deal, but in '86 it was a pretty. You big just deal. didn't see it all that right. much yet. It right. was still, especially in a place like Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right, it wasn't making its its way as much into these inner places. So it was it was a lot for him to take in. And Kathy and Ken weren't the only relationship on the rocks. After five years of sharing her home, friendship, and sometimes her bed with Gwen, Fran was ready to make changes. All of Gwen's major stands were polarizing between pure anger or unconditional love. Gwen Graham had two personalities, saintly and innocent, or jaded and possessed. The women drank, loved, and fought. Literally, drunken whiskey brawls were not uncommon between the two. Fran was always blown away by Gwen's kindness and her never-ending goodwill to those in need. She brought homeless people to their house for a meal and a night of good sleep. She gave money away to the less fortunate. Fran learned the horrid marks on Gwen's arms were self-inflicted burn wounds. Gwen started doing it after the first time she was raped by her father. She made a new one each time it happened. Fran loved Gwen, and she felt bad for the rough life Gwen had, but it was time to move on. The week after Labor Day, when Ken officially moved out with their daughter Jamie, the parties at Kathy's house on on Effie Street began. Don Mayle eventually moved in later that month. And Don Mayle learned a lot about Ken from Kathy, and Don came to understand that Ken represented everything she despised about the male species. He was a macho type. He forced Kathy to eat junk food and then ridiculed her body weight. His rules were unreasonable and he was always yelling. According to Kathy, she wasn't allowed to stand in front of the house fans because Ken said she smelled too bad. To top it off, Ken was an abusive sexual tyrant. He once raped Kathy from behind while she was doing dishes and then forced her to finish the chores afterward. Don made other observations while living with Kathy. The woman was a powerful manipulator. She knew how to toy with Ken's mind and emotions. Getting Ken all worked up was a game to Kathy, and Don suspected Kathy was leading Ken to believe she still loved him. Kathy also didn't care about her daughter once telling Don, quote, I feel bad because I don't care about Jamie. I just don't care about her at all. None of that seemed to phase Don. Her and Kathy were living wild. Regular parties for Alpine Manor staff at Kathy's house on Effie Street and bar hopping. But Kathy rarely got drunk. She preferred to be sober and in control. Kathy was also a very adept lover, but violent in the bedroom. Don and Gwen became fast friends at work, Alpine Manor. They slept together once, but determined there was no compatibility. Gwen was shocked when she learned Don and Kathy were together. Don and Gwen decided they all had to get together. Don, Gwen, Fran, Kathy, and Jack Daniels for a night of playing quarters. Fran was the eldest of these women, and really couldn't stand the idea of playing the drinking game quarters, but the young ones insisted. Within minutes of meeting Kathy, Fran knew the woman was trouble, a liar hiding behind a facade. Kathy made friends with 
everyone at Alpine Manor. She learned intimate details about their lives and ultimately exploited that information in cruel and spiteful ways. She loved playing matchmaker and manipulating people like chess pieces. Everyone wanted to join Kathy's inner circle, and a lot of these women fell in love with her, such as LaDonna, a married-for-15-years mother of five. LaDonna was secretly having affairs with other women, including Kathy, and Kathy used that against her, threatening to tell her husband. Once, Kathy tried setting up Dawn to fight LaDonna, but the women ended up having sex on Kathy's couch instead. What? I I mean... Who has ever worked at a place like this? Like, it, you, and it is sexcapades at the Alpine Manor. And, 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 I, okay. So Don moved in with Kathy on September 28th. Under the promise of no rent, Kathy would help her with paramedic school because she was super smart and a splash of romance. But Don didn't hold Kathy's attention for long before it became the Gwen and Kathy show. Gwen was enchanted by Kathy's sharp mind. Their passion was ravenous, and Kathy shredded Gwen's back with long scratches. Open skin on their necks was always covered in dark hickeys. Kathy nicknamed Gwen her little bunny foo-foo, often telling her, Gwen, you're so cute. If I ever say the word cute ever again, I I want you to, to just stop. Stop me. I need a flowchart of their sex lives. Like that's what oh, I feel bro, like. Oh, it, it's be so right? complicated. Yeah. Like as you're as you're telling this, I should be writing on the glass over here. Like you know, it's the um, for the class. It, yeah. Right. You know, like it's the. I'm gonna go back and take notes. Yeah. Put it all together. If if you if you if you've watched the L word, you know it's like the the anyway. If you know, you know. I guess right. Okay. Kathy's home on Effie became a flop house with different employees from Alpine Manor, now called Gay Manor by their crew, staying there for weeks at a time before moving on. Again, Kathy loved playing matchmaker between couples at Alpine. But do you want to know what she loved even more than being a matchmaker, Don? She loved pitting me, me, these me people. Me, Don, or that Don? You, I don't Don. Know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm asking you. Okay. She loved pitting these people of against each did. other. Of course she did. Her house on Effie was crazy and wild. Fist fights often spilled outside. Kathy reveled in the fights. She usually instigated them and particularly loved it when Don and Gwen tussled over her. Quote, Kathy played mind games inside the nursing home and out, said Don Mail. The object of the game was not only to see if people would believe you, but to make it as entangled as possible. She liked to play with people for sport. And Kathy played records at her parties, always 45s. It was a big aspect of the parties. Her favorite 45 was by Mel Carter. The song, hold me, thrill me, kiss me, make me tell you, I'm in love with you. Through the fall of 1986, the love between Gwen and Kathy blossomed into a full-on adolescent infatuation levels. They went on dates to the zoo and museum. They worked extra hours to be together, constantly sending love letters and poems. Kathy's letters were sophisticated and articulate, whereas Gwen's were cute and elementary. The women started pranking one another and hazing newbies at Alpine Manor, shit like pressing the call button, hiding under a patient's bed, then grabbing the nurse's ankle when she came in. They read patient files. The two removed screens from windows in order to sneak around more efficiently. 
They started reversing patients' sleeping positions, switching their beds and mixing up their rooms. Patients became entertainment. Kathy once made a trail of Reese's Pieces for a confused patient who was obsessed with putting things in his mouth. Oh my gosh. So patient care was of the utmost importance to them. Oh, they, they were on top of patient care, let me tell you. I realize it was the 80s, but I mean, therapy. Therapy is a lot easier. It's, it's just, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Because so many Alpine patients had a confused mental state, it was policy that employee abuse be reported by staff. But very few aides were willing to brave the wrath of Kathy. Besides, Kathy was always one step ahead of people who didn't like her. Working with Gwen, Kathy set them up for failure on the job, usually with falsely soiled bedding or undergarments. Another game Gwen and Kathy enjoyed playing calling residents' families and saying, your mom is really sick, you better get here. The residents' family would show up in a panic to discover everything was fine. How did she keep her job? Again, it was the 80s. People got to do a lot of things. I get it. Because they, they'd show up and like, we don't know what you're talking about. Nobody made that call. It was just, they, she played dumb. Nobody knew. On Halloween of 1986, Don and Gwen dressed up as Alpine Manor patients, complete with restraints. Kathy dressed as herself. That's when their sexual passions intensified and ventured into bondage. Kathy's bedroom violence was unrelenting. Gwen's back was constantly lined with scratches and long scabs. She painfully awoke one morning to Kathy slowly peeling her scabs off. Okay. Kinky. I am a self I'm a self-proclaimed scab picker. I like scabs. I like I, I should have been a I should have been a dermatologist. Right? Like, that's why, you know, like Dr. Pimple Popper and all those things. That is, that's fucking disgusting. Are you kidding? It's a little much. Well, Ken thought he had a chance when word came back that Don Mail moved out. The stories, but. Hey, Ken, run. Just run. Don't go back. Just don't do it. Well, the stories from his neighborhood spies were mortifying fights, naked people, squad cars, and loud, wild sexual noises. Accepting his wife's new lifestyle was really difficult. Ken was happy to learn Gwen moved in. He thought she seemed decent, like there was a sign of hope here. At the end of 1986, resident families made visits to Alpine Manor and noticed a lot of odd things that were all discarded as oversights. One woman thought her incoherent mom flinched in fear as she went to wipe her face with a cloth. Alpine Manor received only two complaints in 1986. A random inspection found the place to be in well order, if not marred by a troublesome employee turnover rate. It wasn't unusual, especially during flu season, for five to ten patients to pass each month. Often, these deaths came without warning. Deaths at the manor were never really evaluated, and the death certificates signed based on patient charts and on the word of nurses' aides and their supervisors. Autopsies, extremely rare, and everyone knew... All of this. I have a prediction. She absolutely has a God complex. There's there's some sort of trauma in her life or in, in mental health issue. Definitely a God complex because if you're because we all know without even you even having to say anything, she's picking off patients. Hundred mm. percent. She's got to be. And then her little puppeteering bullshit with with everybody. I, I mean, mm-mm. 
In January of 1987? We'll see. We'll see. January oh, wait, of 1987? Wait, 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 wait. Actually, that was only one prediction. I, had, yeah. I said I had two. Oh. The second prediction is, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, at the end of this case, more autopsies were performed. We'll see. That's... Yeah. Okay. Oh, the changes, yeah. right? They, they made changes. In January of 1987, Kathy calls Ken crying. Her relationship with Gwen is a mess. Gwen sleeps around and possibly has another girlfriend. Ken feels sorry for her. She stayed the night with Ken that night. He slept on the couch and she in his bed. Gwen called the next morning and the women talked. It seemed to Ken like there was some kind of milestone happening between them. Them being him and Ken and, and Ken Kathy? Ken and Kathy, yep. Ken. Or no, a milestone happening between Gwen and Kathy. Ken Either was observing way. from the phone, um, Kathy sleeping on his couch. Marguerite Chambers, a resident at Alpine Manor, experienced a slow and painful descent into Alzheimer's. Her family tried, but simply could not provide safe care for her. She spent years in state facilities little better than asylums and on nursing home waiting lists until the family eye doctor finally got Mrs. Chambers into the Alpine Manor. The eye doctor? The eye doctor had an in to get her into Alpine. The optometrist Manor. has one. No offense one. to an optometrist out there. I don't, but I mean, waiting I, list quite I get long. It. I he got her bumped. But where, where the frick is is that lady's physician? Like worthless in that case, I guess. And again, I I mean, absolutely no disrespect to optometrists. Sure. I, you, he had an in. I'm, I'm clearly wearing glasses. I obviously support them. But come on. Okay. Mar- Marguerite's daughter, Jan, had two high school classmates working at Alpine Manor as nurses' aides. It gave her a lot of comfort. Alzheimer's ravaged Marguerite's brain. By the time she made it to Alpine, her brain was at just 75% of normal size. After becoming unruly, she was strapped down, wrists and ankles with felt straps, and fed by, the, by a tube. She often appeared to be crying but it was really from a prescription that kept her pupils from drying called artificial tears. If only the pain in Marguerite's eyes could have been translated to words, the five-year resident could have shared undue terrors with her family. At night, a silent specter visited Marguerite and toyed with her life. The forceful pressure of a rolled washcloth engulfed her nose, choking the air. The washcloth also was pulled up over her chin, forcing Marguerite's mouth shut. She slipped from consciousness and later awoke, gasping for air. The night visits continued for a time until finally death took Marguerite in January of 1987. The call to Marguerite's family sent alarm bells ringing. The nurse's aide who called was short, even rude, and ordered Jan to decide within 10 minutes where they wanted the body to go. When the aide told Jan the cause of death was choking on her food, it was a red flag. Marguerite was fed by a tube or by staff, and it was baby food. The nursing home called again. The coroner is here. You must make a decision. She won- Jan wondered, why are they pushing so hard for this? Eventually, they decided on a funeral home, made the arrangements, and held a nice Catholic funeral for her mother. But when Jan received the death certificate, something struck her as odd. Her mother's cause of death was listed as myocardial infraction. Infarction, excuse me, infarction, also known as a heart attack. Her cause of death, natural. There was no mention of choking. Jan let it go for a time. 
but she couldn't shake the feeling that something seemed off. It persisted for weeks, and there seemed to be so much disorder from Alpine Manor. Gwen and Kathy were scheduled off the day after Marguerite's death. That night, when they role-played sex games in the bedroom, the women took turns faux-suffocating one another with tube socks. Hold on to that detail. In February... Ken went to get Kathy's Ken went to Kathy's house to get her W-2 so they could file taxes. It did not go well. The women had been prank calling him at all hours of the night. When he brought it up, Kathy went into a rage and things got batshit. She came at Ken with a Louisville slugger. Gwen Gwen let out a guttural scream and tackled him at the back of the knees. Ken initially thought it was kind of amusing until Kathy plunged her fingers into Ken's eyes. The women bellowed out war cries. Gwen yelled, I love you, Kathy Wood! And Kathy yelled, I love you! Just when Gwen was about to smash a porcelain lamp over Ken's head, a cop walked in. The guy's going to do your taxes. And he wanted his records. I love that he wanted his records really bad, too. Didn't go well. Later that same... Can we, can we yeah. go back to that tube sock thing? Nope. Okay. Nope. You're going to hold on to that one. Okay. Later that same day at Alpine Manor, resident Maurice Spinogli was giving AIDS difficulties. Maurice was often resistant. He didn't like sponge baths. But Jim Shooter and Gwen Graham were experienced and knew how to handle themselves. Jim got Maurice's pants off and managed to place him on the toilet. He was still struggling when Gwen came in to remove his shirt. Suddenly, Maurice's back stiffened and he was gasping for air. Moments later, a nurse from just outside the door responded. When she arrived, Maurice was turning blue and gasping. Then his eyes rolled back and he was gone. He died on the floor at 8 p.m. Everyone assumed he had a heart attack. Heather Berger was a young, impressionable, and good-looking gal from a wealthy family who started working at Alpine Manor in the midst of all this. The high school cheerleader got swept up by the toxic clique of Kathy Wood. When Heather joined the crew at the Carousel Bar, their favorite hangout, she just loved how fun and kind everybody was. And Heather had never really dated. In fact, she was still a virgin. Before too long... Heather lost her virginity to Gwen, and the two began secretly dating, even though Heather considered Kathy a good friend. She felt bad sleeping with Gwen in Kathy's own bed, but Heather just couldn't resist Gwen. And Gwen still loved Kathy. Still, yeah, right? they're still a couple. I mean, clearly, with yeah. the, you know, the I love you Kathy Wood thing. Gwen but... majorly in love with Kathy, for yeah. sure. Alpine Manor resident Clara Pierce started having night terrors in late December of 1986 and into January in the middle of the night. She'd press the emergency button and scream, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. Clara, who used to walk the halls of the manor, was now restrained after breaking a hip. Even after the injury, she kept trying to leave her bed, so she had to be restrained at night. LaDonna, an aide, was there to calm her. No one's going to kill you, Clara. Yes, they are going to kill me. They come into my room at night and they whisper, they whisper, I'm going to kill you. An 87-year-old patient diagnosed with organic brain syndrome, it wasn't difficult to decide Clara was just confused. 
Earlier that night, another patient being escorted by Kathy Wood to use the restroom was screaming, Help! She's trying to rape me! Residents were always saying crazy stuff. Clara screamed of the whispers and death threats for the entire month of January. Clara's daughter, Margaret, visited regularly. She thought the delusion was problematic. Nothing at Alpine ever seemed out of the ordinary. Their state inspections were positive. Clara's room was always immaculate. As a frequent visitor, Margaret's assessment of Alpine Manor was positive, even when she arrived unannounced. Tish Prescott, a nurse and night shift supervisor, knew something was up at Alpine Manor, but she couldn't put her finger on the pulse. They, they were constantly short-staffed, and it seemed word spread quickly anytime Tish was making surprise rounds. She knew of pranks and of people fondling each other, but couldn't suss out who it was. At 65 years old, Tish was old school. She had 40 years of experience in the field. When she noticed patients becoming scared, it was the last it was the last straw. One night she called police and they busted an off-duty employee on Manor grounds. He was fired. A lot of policies had gone lax because of the high turnover and upper management was reluctant to fire anyone. Tish encountered a lot of problems with Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham. Gwen showed up shit-faced drunk for a shift and got written up. Tish wanted her fired but was denied. The supervisor fielded numerous complaints of sabotage, even threats against staff from Gwen and Kathy. Tish knew they were a couple, and while Gwen was clearly the more masculine partner, even if she was much smaller, Kathy okay, was completely in charge. Don't, this is by matter. her own observations, okay, so don't, put, don't, say, don't project oh, okay, that on I'm me. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry I jumped on you, but I was going to say that does not matter. Stop. Okay. There were also Sorry. complaints of Gwen and Kathy being in patients' rooms with the doors closed. A major infraction, but everyone assumed they were just making out in there. The reports Tish attempted to file against them consistently fell on deaf ears. Late 1986 and early 1987 was a winter of terror for the residents of Alpine Manor. During long winter nights, when Kathy and Gwen were bored... They prowled the nursing home looking for patients who would struggle if suffocated and those who would not. They did this by clamping their fingers over the nostrils, constricting the breathing passage while covering their mouth. They studied the suffocation process, hoping to determine how potential victims might react. Kathy liked whispering into their ears, You're going to die tonight. Several murders were attempted but failed after the resident managed to fight them off. It was decided men would not be suitable victims. And is there any wonder whatsoever why any of us still living don't want to be put in a nursing home? Oh, man. Right? Like, it's, it's, it's yes. shit like this. It, like, it, this, is, this is what caused that. Yep. By February, the patients of Alpine Manor were living in panic, constantly agitated and restless, but no one seemed to know why. When Myrtle Luce passed away from an alleged heart attack, it always struck her family as odd. Over the years, while Myrtle's brain and body deteriorated, her heart was the one thing that was always strong. None of it stood out at the time, but the night supervisor would later reflect on finding Myrtle. There was a discarded rolled washcloth on her bed. Myrtle's nose seemed squished, and all of the mucus had clogged in the woman's nostrils. Allegedly, 
The last person to treat Myrtle was Pat Ritter, an aide on the wrong side of Kathy's shit list. Pat's signature on Myrtle's chart was inconsistent. Later, the you're, supervisor learned... You're on the wrong side of a shit list? Does that mean you're on the right shit list? Is there a right side? Yeah, you're just on it. Yeah. Okay. I, you're just all you're, over it. I feel like if you're on the right side of a shit list... Is like there a right not, side to a shit list? You're not on the shit Probably list. Probably not. But I just... I, I wasn't... I wasn't... I wasn't completely The supervisor sure. later learned Pat called in sick that evening. Myrtle was 95, and her family finally felt she could rest easy. Sean Doherty was 21 years old when she started started working at Alpine Manor, a young, pretty woman with a generous heart. Sean was patient and tender with residents. She got along well with everyone except Kathy Wood, who nicknamed the young lady Miss America. Sean's first late-night cleanup came in February at 2 a.m. It was a bowel movement that spilled onto the bed. It was May Mason, and when Sean approached May with a white cloth, May freaked out and fought against the cloth. Another woman took a swing at Sean with a deodorant can. It was concealed like a weapon beneath her covers. Okay, a nursing home should not be like a prison. Like that's that that spot that's, gets that, me. That spot gets me. At four a.m., when Sean made her rounds, she found May Mason dead. Eyes closed, mouth wide open, her jaw sort of pushed to one side. May's skin was already turning yellow. Sean had never found any of her patients dead. She was traumatized, and she stayed with May's body until it was taken by the coroner. When a patient passed, it was customary for all staff to stop and pay their respects. Sean remembered seeing everyone on staff come by except two people. Who do you think missed out on paying their respects? Were they busy with tube socks? Uh, they might have been. Ugh. Af- so it's so. This is this is just icky. Wait, where do you find these fucking people? Like, how do you find these? And why oh. are we always in Bismarck when I am stuck listening to the, the worst, worst female in in history? I guess it's, it's tradition. Gosh. After May died, her roommate became paranoid and insisted on sleeping with the light on. She also asked Sean to announce herself when entering the room. Sean noticed a lot of patient records weren't being properly kept. She eventually quit and directly told the supervisor it was because of Kathy. May's body was quickly cremated. Her funeral services held on February 20th. May's official cause of death, a myocardial infarction. The heart attack was nearly instant. Just one week earlier, May's doctor said she was, in terms of her heart, was in perfect physical health. At Alpine Manor, Kathy spread rumors that destroyed marriages and then laughed over it. Her efforts helped ruin the marriages of LaDonna and Angie. Both women were at one point in love with Kathy, but somehow got matched to one another by Kathy. Gwen was still dating Heather on the side, and Kathy kind of knew it, but didn't want to blame Gwen, so she took it out on everyone else. Belle Burkhard, a resident at Alpine Manor for over seven years, came from the rugged Upper Michigan Peninsula, a strong-willed, independent, beer-drinking woman known for escape attempts and outright hostility. Belle spent a lot of time in restraints. By Belle's fourth year, she was non-ambulatory. By the end of 86, mostly bedridden. Nobody had seen her daughter in years. Belle's brother visited once or twice each year. When all hope seemed lost for Belle, the resident made a connection with a new aide, Gwen Graham. The two giggled, and Gwen was able to understand Belle. 
Kathy operated the nurse's station near Belle Burkhardt's room while Gwen went in and smothered the old woman with a washcloth. During the murder, Kathy activated the in-room intercom so she could listen to the rustling sheets and gurgling death of Belle Burkhardt. Even though patients were being killed, the death toll didn't really stand out. Five in January, one less than the year before, ten in February, the same as the year before, and only eight in March, three less than the year before. And nobody noticed that Gwen and Kathy were never working in the days following a death. They were freaking calculated. Oh. Like, beyond calculated. Big time. The real obsession and noteworthy events at Alpine Manor centered around Kathy, Gwen, their entourage, and the sexual liaisons of everyone in between. Kathy was fully in control of Gwen. Kathy chose Gwen's clothing. She decided her hairstyles. She usually made Gwen wear pigtails. And Kathy was jealous of anyone Gwen got close to. The parties on Effie Street raged on. And look, it's, it's, it's way too many names for me to rattle off in this story, but suffice to say, this is a clique of 10 to 12 people, most of whom have slept together. There's constant brawling, at least three destroyed marriages, sexual masochism and kinkiness, women leaving husbands, abandoning kids, bodies piling up at Alpine Manor, and right in the middle of it, you got the queen heifer herself, Kathy Wood. Yeah. Everyone yeah. else was her peasant. Wait, and I mean, I, I, I am a very inclusive person. I'm, and I will not. And I'm certainly, it's not my place to to kink shame anybody, right? Like, it's nobody's place to kink shame. What you do in your bedroom is your business. Until you start murdering people, and and that's where you start getting off on it. Like yeah. that's where, like, that that's that's that's. This is this is making me very uncomfortable. Very yeah. uncomfortable. It got to a point where nobody cared about one another's feelings in their own frenzied, lustful rush for Kathy's affection. In some ways, whether she knew it or not, Kathy was like a cult leader. Don Mail came in and out of their li- came in and out of their lives. The once former employee spent most nights blackout drunk, wrecking cars and getting into fights. One night, she knocked out Ladonna's front teeth with no recollection of why. In another of their many twisted mind games, Gwen and Kathy told Don Mayle they were killing Alpine Manor patients. The women took the ruse so far, they even showcased trophies like a pair of tube socks that allegedly belonged to Marguerite Chambers. Don didn't believe it. Murder trophies on one shelf next to cute stuffed animals on another, strap-ons and sex toys on the last. Fuck you and your head games, Don told them. Marianne, this again, that's someone's private bedroom. So what they keep on their shelves is their business. So don't, that's, that is not done. So don't don't be judging there. You got trophies, you got stuffed animals. Well, the the weirdest part in there is murder trophies. Okay. Like that's like, that's that's where my issue lies. Um, I, I almost feel like Don male is a bit of a victim herself. You know, she was, she did not have an easy life. She was 18 when she came into this. She was, uh, you know, in it, she was a lesbian in the eighties, right? Not I mean, easy. you know, yep. I, so I mean, I, 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 I have some sympathy for her. I, I, I really do. Well, and sure. I mean, guarded sympathy. Cause I have no idea where this is going. Fair. 
Yep. Okay. Marianne Conway, a registered nurse, was the nurse's aide supervisor at Alpine Manor for six months. She considers it the worst employment experience of her life. A smart 36-year-old professional, Marianne didn't buy into Kathy's bullshit. She wasn't intimidated. When Edith Cook passed away, Marianne noticed the bulky frame of Kathy Wood lingering around in the wake of her death in the doorway. What Marianne didn't notice was Edith's missing false teeth, which had to be removed so she could be more easily suffocated. The love letters and poems between Kathy and Gwen were gratuitously squishy. Kathy came up with all kinds of secret acronyms. Here's a note she wrote Gwen. Gwen, I love you. MM dash right now, right now, right now. IWK, IWH, IWL, IWCN, especially IWCN. Kathy. Hey, I got it. Translation. I want Ken. No. Nope. Just oh, let, let, shoot. It's, 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 Translation. I, I, I had it like IWA. I was like, I want Heather. I want LaDonna. I had all the names with the. Uh, you're close, things. but it's I love you. Marry me. Right now, right now, right now. I want kisses. I want hugs. I want love. I want clean nails. Especially, I want clean nails. And that was a clever reference to getting shit stuck in your nails as somebody who had to care for the elderly. Another favorite O G I N Y K. Oh, Gwen, I need your kisses. But my personal favorite was WWK, warm, wet kisses. Was it that hard to just write warm, wet kisses? I mean, yeah. it's like it's like the, the person who orders a bar uh, a beer at the bar. It had to be like, cute with acronyms because she loved crosswords and stuff like that. So, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the person who orders a keystone light at the bar and they're like, I'll take a key light. It's like, yeah. was it would it take you that long to say keystone? Like... You know, warm, you know, mot sticks. You mean mozzarella sticks? Like I I said the exact word in the same amount of time. You know, so warm, wet kisses, WWK. WWK. You know, and I'm judging her pretty hard for that. Well, you're going to want to judge more. Just hang on. I'm I'm nitpicking now. Yeah, (laughs) Kathy's demented desire to destroy people was only made complete if she could get them to fall in love with her first. Catherine Brinkman was another such victim. Gwen was angry after Kathy said she had feelings for Brinkman. So Kathy tells her, hey, look, I'll make it up to you. And she arranged to go on a fake date with Brinkman and then told Gwen to hide in the bushes so she could jump out and beat the shit out of Catherine Brinkman while she was on the date. And then Kathy scurried along like, oh, no, sorry, Catherine Brinkman. And Kathy, it was all the whole plan was Kathy's doing. And she scurried off looking innocent. The list of women from Alpine Manor who fell in love with Kathy is not insignificant. I'm sorry. Angie Bros. When you're, when you're like, so sorry, Catherine Brinkman. It was it was a good reaction. I'm that was <laughs> that was that made me giggle, and I'm yeah, sorry. The list of yeah, so she all these women loved her. I mean, Angie Brozak, Catherine LaDonna, Brinkman. I'm, I am Don sorry, Mayo, but uh, yeah, Catherine Brinkman, Lisa Lynch, and of course Gwen Graham. In spite of the fact Gwen and Kathy were a couple, they both slept around with others, but agreed to tell each other. Kathy knew Gwen was with Heather, and she knew Gwen was not telling her. Heather wanted to save Gwen from Kathy, but Gwen was always so eager to please and protect Kathy. Because she's a victim. Because because she is, she herself is, she herself has been manipulated. Yep. That's that's why. That's what you do with an abuser. Absolutely. Yep. In April, during a secret visit, Gwen told Heather, Heather, I love you, but there's something I have to tell you. Gwen was crying. 
I killed six people. Heather was stunned. She didn't believe Gwen. This was just another one of Kathy's twisted games. Kathy was trying to hurt Heather because she and Gwen were in love. But Gwen was insistent. I love you. But I did it. She offered names. Heather knew them all. Still, she refused to believe. In May, Kathy was promoted, in spite of protests from Tish and other staff. Turmoil flourished. She was written up repeatedly for insubordination and inappropriate behavior, but the reports mysteriously disappeared from her file. Gwen was growing distant, and her divorce with Ken was finalized. The drunken lunacy reached a new peak that summer after a long night at the carousel. For no discernible reason, Gwen jumped out of Kathy's love truck and started walking. Heather joined her. That is Kath- so icky. <laughs> yeah. Ka- oh. Kathy came squealing up to them. The, the love truck squealed, not Kathy. You've got to quit calling it a love truck first. No, I it's really I a love it. truck. I, I, that's great. Her, her pickup, right? Like no, we, no, mean, no. It's literally a Chevrolet love truck, L-U-V. It's a real truck that was made for like six years in the 80s. Yeah, no, I get it. Okay. I get it. That's cool. But okay. again, I don't say, it's hey, truck, I'm going to hop into my F-150 yeah. or my Dodge Ram. So, no, I, 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 why do you have to keep calling it a love truck? It's perfect. It's not. It's icky, so, and this is, this is just making this more uncomfortable. Kathy squealed up. She grabbed Gwen by the hair and tossed her back into the love truck. She forced Gwen to ride in the middle and told Heather to drive. At the next intersection, Gwen crawled over Heather and made another run for it. Kathy, moving deceptively quick, caught her at the back of the truck. The women started pounding each other, but within moments, Kathy powerhouses Gwen, who was much smaller, tosses her into the back of the pickup while screaming at Heather to drive. Gwen's shirt gets ripped off, exposing her breasts. Suddenly, she leaps over the side of the Don't love truck. Don't you say it? Don't she you say it. She leaps over the side of the love truck box <laughs> and runs up the hillside, boobs a-flapping. Kathy finds her and drags her back to the love truck by the hair. Okay, um, this is this is Oh yeah. All laughter it's a, it's a lot. all laughter aside. That's a crazy situation. It's still a very abusive situation. Yes, super right? abusive and like Gwen, it's, it's, Gwen it's the, the the situation itself is not funny. No. Gwen boobs of laughing in the been, love truck are funny, but I know, I know it's hard. It's still it is still very violent and icky and And Gwen might have been on LSD during that experience. What? So man, yeah. That's tough. So after where, another Where is this coming? Like are, it's did all you make in there. this up? No. Like, no. This is one hundred percent work of fact. Another after another violent fight between the two during a softball game, Gwen finally had enough and left Kathy. Her and Heather moved in together with Lisa Lynch. It was supposed to be a new start, but Kathy constantly hounded them. She parked the love truck up on a hill above their place and watched. She drove by, stopped by, and stalked them for weeks. Gwen and Heather made plans to leave Grand Rapids and move to Texas. Those plans suddenly changed when Kathy showed up at Alpine Manor at the end of Heather's shift. 
She asked if Heather planned on moving to Texas with Gwen. When Heather said yes, Kathy responded with an ominous threat. She would put Gwen in prison before she ever let her leave. Well, that's nice that she put her, you know, she'd put her in prison before killing her. Well, then she said, what if I told you uh, I'll kill you and Gwen in Texas if you go there? What if I told you Gwen and I killed some people? Well, that ruined it, I guess. Yep. So... When I, was Gwen giving, arrived, I was giving her just a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. No, it, it, yeah, she escalates. When Gwen arrived to pick Heather up, Kathy asked to speak with her in the love truck privately. <laughs> a few minutes later, Gwen returned, crying. She gave her keys to Heather and said she had to go with Kathy. The next day, Kathy brought Gwen to the mobile home so she could pick up her things. She told them, quote, I can't stay here. Kathy has something on me. She won't let me stay. I can't talk about it. I want out, and I will come back. I just can't right now. One week later, Gwen returned. Her back was scratched to hell again, but she said it was officially over. She would appease Kathy with social visits until it was time to leave for Texas. What Gwen told Heather next was horrifying. Kathy left her tied up for several days and then tried to smother her with a pillow. Quote, then she took my gun and stuck it up my cooch. She stuck it right up there and it was cold and I was scared. Kathy called Ken in late August of 1987 to whine about her relationship with Gwen again, but this time it seemed like she had something more to say. After a few of her games, Kathy told Ken she and Gwen killed six patients at Alpine Manor. Ken felt some sort of revelation coming for months, but never this. According to Kathy, she stood guard and ran interference with any nurse's aides while Gwen smothered patients with rolled washcloths. She does it to relieve her tension, Ken. It's just so cute. Well, you know, yoga helps too, but like, I don't, I don't get this. This is, this is She offered Ken insane. more details. How Tish, the supervisor, nearly caught them about stalking the nursing home, marking patients for death. They picked people who wouldn't be a threat if they survived. She told him their original goal was to spell murder as a homicidal acronym by using the first letter of each victim's name. But they couldn't get it to work out. Edith was a mercy killing, she said. Ken refused to believe her. All this is because you just don't know what kind of life you want. Oh, no. No, Ken, that's not right. Do not do her We voice, did it because it was fun. Oh, my gosh. Ken this eventually is... decided not to go to the police because he didn't have any proof. And Kathy was a well-established manipulative liar. And it was the 80s, and the police would have been like, ah, I mean, we don't get involved in that business. By mid-August, neither Gwen nor Heather worked at Alpine Manor. It was only a week until they'd be leaving. When 77-year-old patient Earl Goodsward died, it struck staff as unreasonable that Kathy refused to help clean him. In fact, she refused to enter his room after he died. Maureen Haverhill was a patient at Alpine Manor from July 31st, 1987 until early January of 88. She was active, talkative, a little forgetful, and quite feisty. Once a week, her son Jim picked her up and brought her to a beautician. Maureen logged many complaints about they over the months. One of them struck her stylist as odd. 
quote, they tried to kill me last night. They tried to smother me in my bed. They put a pillow over my face and tried to smother me. It's important to note, Lucy was admitted to Alpine Manor five weeks after Gwen's departure. Additionally, this woman set a pillow over the face, not washcloths. October 6th, 1988. On an otherwise ordinary Thursday, Detective Tom Freeman was about to have the most bizarre interview of his life. He didn't know it yet, but it would be the first of many. The 34-year-old police veteran was one of two detectives at the Walker Police Department in Michigan. Don, who do you think's going to crack here? Prediction: Who do you think's about to crack and talk to the detective? I don't know. I feel like that's a lot of pressure because Kathy is a loose cannon. The interview guest was none other than, none other than her husband, ex-husband, Ken Wood. Oh, he's five. Yep. Thank you, Ken. The, the recorded interview began, quote... He, he may not have been a great husband, which, you know... He might have been good, he, too, because he, he whatever those been. people knew about Ken, they learned from Kathy. It's hard to, it's hard to know. But, but thanks for being a stand-up human. This yeah. is good. The recorded interview began, quote, She told me that starting in February of 1987, that she and her girlfriend, girlfriend Gwen Graham had murdered or suffocated a woman. Quote, Between fe- February and April of 87 that they had suffocated six different patients at Alpine Manor. Kenneth Wood, the ex-husband of Kathy Wood, spent hours detailing his tumultuous life, his marriage, Kathy's lies, the gay sexcapades of Alpine Manor. Every time Detective Freeman thought he heard the craziest of it, can up the ante. But there was no forensic evidence or details. For all Freeman knew, this was an angry, jealous ex-husband mad at his wife for becoming a lesbian. The only thing Freeman was sure of after the interview, Ken's ex-wife had him swimming in a big sea of shit. (laughs) Something that really stood out to Detective Freeman was the murder acronym that victims were chosen by their names so Kathy and Gwen could spell murder. Freeman was also suspicious that Ken's confession was just now coming to light 14 months after Kathy told him. Kathy Wood's last day at Alpine Manor was Friday, October 7th. Her supervisor will never forget it because Kathy had asked her to borrow money for an abortion. She was scheduled to have the abortion on Monday, October October 10th. You can imagine that was bullshit. What also made it unforgettable... Kathy was escorted from the building by Detective Freeman. The 10-minute car ride from Alpine Manor to the Walker PD was uncomfortable and unlike anything Freeman had ever seen. I feel like Detective Freeman and all of us in this room are like feeling the same. Uh, this, oh, yeah. is, this is in freaking sane here. Kathy Wood didn't say a single word or ask one question of Freeman during the drive. Nobody had ever done that in his more than 20-year career. Freeman secured a warrant calling for Kathy Wood's, calling for her employment records and for all the medical records of patients who died during her employment. Thousands and thousands of pages of documents were brought in. Freeman's partner began the work while he decided to bring Kathy in for questioning. At the station... Kathy refused to be recorded, but she was willing to talk. Freeman read her rights, and she signed the acknowledgement. Throughout the three-hour interview, Kathy Wood was the personification of serenity. It was 
unsettling. She blasted through dates, places, times, names, and details. It was quick, and her story was constantly several steps ahead of anything Freeman anticipated. With matter-of-fact confidence, Kathy would explain to Freeman that it was Gwen Graham who killed six patients at Alpine Manor. She said, I don't know a lot, but always coupled it with a compelling fact or surprise. It was strategic. This woman was talking about six murders like it was a trip to the grocery store, fashioning herself as a witness to murder. Freeman played along, but what he really needed was evidence. Finally, Kathy offered to show him letters that proved Gwen's guilt. Freeman didn't want to mess this up, so he got the county prosecutor involved. Freeman and his partner escorted Kathy to the fourth floor office. It had a panoramic sunset view of Grand Rapids, a stately desk, a well-dressed prosecutor, and sweet Kathy. Kathy and the prosecutor hit it off. They started bantering. Freeman surmised she was even flirting. A well, second, of course, of course, course she was. She's a manipulative asshole, and <laughs> and the prosecutor is the one with the power. So yep. she's she's not an idiot. She uh, is going to go to the one at the top. Absolutely. And it, it, I'm over it. I'm done. Uh, uh, I, she sucks. Like I'm. A second reading of her rights was given, and the prosecutor agreed if she was willingly offering the letters, then no warrant was required. By now, Kathy was living with her parents, and Freeman had to awkwardly escort Kathy through the house into the basement bedroom while her family ate supper. And it was really weird because Kathy didn't want her parents to know she was with a cop, so she demanded Freeman pose as her boyfriend when the two went inside. He played along. Then, once in the basement, she asked him, if, would, would you mind if I changed? I need you to turn around. No! She was still in her dirty work clothes. Yeah, Please he, tell yeah. me. No, he, he, did. he did. He let her do it, yeah. So anyways, that's the love letters that she produced were childish and said nothing about murder. Freeman pushed for an arrest warrant for Gwen, but he was denied. The prosecutor wanted him to focus on the real murder case in town, a golfer who killed his wife. He told Freeman... Kathy's wild lesbian love story is more suited for the National Enquirer. Okay, fuck that guy. I'm, I'm, like, come on. Tom was told to drop the case. And while he didn't trust everything Kathy said, Freeman believed there was truth in her story. Some part of him even felt sympathy for her. Meanwhile, Gwen and Heather had been living in Tyler, Texas. And things weren't great. Gwen struggled to live so close to her childhood trauma. Gwen and Kathy wrote to one another regularly, and Kathy was always calling. Gwen was visibly shaken after one such call, telling Heather, Kathy says she's done it again. Then Gwen explained that Kathy killed one of Gwen's old favorite residents. Heather hated the joke by now, but Gwen insisted it was real and Kathy was killing patients again. Fourteen months later, Heather and Gwen were starting to live a nice, quiet life in a Texas mobile home park, but every once in a while, Gwen brought up the murders. So we're, we're probably like 1989 now? Uh, no, 87. This, 80, oh, 87. Still, okay. 88 now. 88 now. It so feels the murders, like it's been 15 years. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> this, is around, this is around midsummer 88, you know, um, this Holy is kind of catching up on what Kath, oh, on, on, on okay. what Heather so and Gwen of, have been doing okay, okay. while that was going kind on with Kathy. Because they, yeah, they've gotcha. been in, they've been in, in Texas. Okay. So 
Um, Gwen kept bringing the murders up, but in each time she brought these murders up to Heather, the story became more elaborate. Kathy devised the plan along with the murder acronym while they were doing crossword puzzles laying in bed at the house on Effie. Kathy wanted to kill a lot of people. She had plans to murder at least three nurses' aides who wronged her, Angie, LaDonna, and even Heather. Heather wanted Gwen to let it go, but Gwen was always itching to tell the story. She told her old buddy, Debbie Kidder, in the living room of their mobile home, why'd you kill him? Was it euthanasia, mercy killing? Debbie was curious. Well, at first I felt sorry for them, but then it was fun. Then Gwen told her about some of the trophies they took. On Saturday, October 8th, 1988, Detective Freeman met with polygraph operator John Hulsing, a 25-year veteran with a master's in psychology. Freeman thought polygraphs were bullshit, but he knew it would be necessary, and he wanted to prepare for it. Can, can we go back uh, real quick? The, I've done a lot of crossword puzzles in my, in my day. Sure. I'm, I am my father's daughter. I, I say shit the bed and, um, you know, unask the AO. I, I'm, I am my father's daughter. Not once, not once, not even half a time have I thought of coming up with an elaborate murder plan yeah. and spelling out their names for, for As murder. As an acronym. Like, I'm, I'm really, really bothered by this. It's just so flippant. It's just like, eh. It's confident. We were, we were, we were, doing, we were doing a crossword. It's fine. Let's murder people. Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. So Kathy arrived at the police department that day, driving the love truck, accompanied by her new girlfriend, Nancy. So Nancy was there to stand guard over the love truck because Kathy was behind on payments and the repo man was coming. You're... You were just doing this to piss me off, no. weren't you? <laughs> she also told Freeman, well, I know you're going to take me to jail one of these days. So that way she had someone to drive the love truck to safety should she lose her freedom. And Okay, let so me tell you. This, All right, so I, the, I, hang on a second. I was having, I was having a difficult time um, picturing, it. picturing the love truck. Yep. You guys. This, you yeah. guys. This thing, thing, this thing is... Fancy. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold this up just so you guys can see it, so we can all get into this. If you're not familiar, here I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, right? Like, nothing says "Make love to me in my love truck" like that more truck. like this oh, truck. Yeah. Like this is, this is she Pro- fancy. Probably why they had to stop making it. It was bringing know, too much it heat. Was, it was, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of things coming from that undercarriage. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so this time, Kathy agreed to write her story down and make it a signed statement. According to Kathy, she stumbled into Marguerite's room while Gwen was suffocating her but fled in fear. Gwen later threatened to shoot Kathy if she told anyone. Gwen killed other patients because they irritated her, and killing them relieved her tension. Kathy told told this information to Ken her sister Barb, and another friend Sean about the murders because she was afraid Gwen might kill her and someone had to know the secret. Wasn't Sean, Sean was the one that she named Miss America, right? No, that was, it's a different, this that is a different, different Sean. Oh, yeah. this is a different Sean. Yep. Uh, two, fema- two females yeah. named Sean, really? This is a boy Sean. Oh, okay. First one female, yep. Okay. Sean's her new best friend since February. Gotcha, it happens. Yeah. The county prosecutor showed up during this interview and interrupted it. He quickly turned the office into a circus discussion over the dynamics of gay relationships as explained by Kathy and Nancy. 
The prosecutor hardly acknowledged Kathy's signed statement and told Freeman, you don't have any physical evidence. There's no body, no autopsy reports. You don't even have circumstantial evidence aside from one crazy lesbian story. Again, he told Detective Freeman to focus on the other murder. And again, Freeman pressed on. So that guy can... He's something. Go frick right off with his homophobia yep. and focus on the white collar crime. Gotcha. That's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Worry about the golfer. Not, not this, um, not this. Yeah. Yep. Focus on your homophobia, asshole. When word of the search warrant and murder allegations started spreading, everyone thought Ken Wood was a jealous, angry husband seeking revenge. And everyone at Alpine Manor, they knew Ken was a monster, at least according to Kathy. The official stance from Alpine Manor was that we are a state-certified and respected facility. Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham, two of our best employees. The nursing home agreed to fully cooperate, but would not entertain the notion of murder until proven otherwise. I I bet they really, really regretted that later. Uh, Detectives began comparing nursing files, employee records, and patient deaths. Some of the deaths lined up with the presence of Kathy and Gwen, although although it was really impossible to know for sure who was where and when. 21-year-old Sean Thatcher, that's Kathy's new best friend since February of that year, came in for an interview on Monday, corroborating Kathy's story. Quote, knowing her, she could never do that. There's, there's just no way. So I just don't question it one bit. How do you know, dude? You've only known her since February. Oh, yeah. Like- I mean, they're BFFs. Thatcher was prepared by Kathy, of course, and all his answers conveniently painted her as a victim. Freeman didn't know that, and he might not have cared. Now he had three signed statements confirming Kathy's story from Ken, Kathy's sister Barb, and Sean. The reports were painting Gwen as a hardened, tough, self-mutilating psychopath who loved pain and fighting. But everything Barb and Sean knew about Gwen came secondhand from Kathy, Ken had some altercations with Gwen, but predominantly, his perception of the woman was also crafted by Kathy. It didn't matter. Tom Freeman felt he had the portrait of a killer. As with all of Kathy's lies, there was always a dose of truth. On October 12th, officers arrested Gwen Graham at the Texas mobile home she shared with Heather Berger. Their search warrant was for letters or souvenirs, physical evidence. Heather had to be forcibly pried from a door handle, screaming as Gwen was escorted off in handcuffs. Freeman stayed behind with Heather. She was uncontrollably shaking and crying. Quote, Kathy is making it up. She told him over and over. Kathy is crazy. She's evil. Don't you understand? It was like she had Gwen hypnotized for a long time. Back at the station, when confronted with the murder allegations, Gwen played it cool. That was a game. That was all a joke. You came all the way to Texas for that? But when Freeman got specific with names, Gwen demanded a lawyer and the interview stopped. The last thing Gwen told him was that Kathy was jealous and trying to get even because Gwen left her for Heather. Police arrested Gwen for bad checks, she wrote years prior. When they let Heather in the room with Gwen, she collapsed at Gwen's feet crying and professing her love. Quote, it's okay. You're a good puppy, Gwen told her. I'm Watching young Heather Berger's reactions following the arrest was enough for Freeman to decide Gwen had power and control over others. 
Heather went back to their house while Gwen got booked. She found a number of items the police missed, her personal journal, bills from the house on Effie and other letters. She burned everything. Kathy was already distorting the truth, and police clearly didn't know the real Kathy at all. Gwen agreed to a polygraph. Investigators ran her several times. The results were inconclusive. Freeman always said, quote, I wouldn't run my dog on one. He hated the polygraph. The examiner, however, offered his personal opinion. Quote, she's a cold-blooded killer. Freeman left Texas with a personal affirmation Gwen was a serial killer, but no real evidence. Kathy's polygraph was up next back in Michigan with Detective John Hulsing. Now, we've all heard about the famed lie detector test, but for those who've never had it explained to them, here's how the polygraph is supposed to work. When the so test wait, this is somebody's going to comment and say that you don't explain something. Just I just thrown it out there. I thought it was I'm interesting to know the scientific it, it, details. I think it is so, interesting. I, it is. I'm, when, I've got your back here. When the test subject fears being detected, that fear produces a measurable physiological reaction when the subject responds deceptively. The machine measures changes in respiration, blood pressure, heartbeat, and galvanic skin response. Generally, it begins with a 45-minute interview without the machine. Hulsing's- well, and, and a lot of times, I, I think they're bullshit too, right? I mean, they're, they're, it's 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 gone both ways. It has, and a lot of times they are used to elicit a confession, um, whether or not the person pass or fails it. They oftentimes sure. will confess because of the pressure. But right. so Holsing's stock questions were often revealing unto themselves. He asked, "Quote: What, you know, what is the best thing that's ever happened to you?" Well, my daughter. Then she changed it. Gwen, having Gwen was the best thing that ever happened to me, and the worst. Losing Gwen was the worst. Surprised she didn't say her daughter. Yeah, right? Oh, when Holsing took a break to chat with Freeman, he discovered the detective wasn't watching the pre-interview. In fact, Freeman didn't even record the session. Holsing had only seen that lack of care and detail a few times in his career. Freeman was chatting with Kathy's girlfriend, Nancy, and claimed he couldn't be objective if he watched Kathy. It didn't make any sense to Holsing. When Holsing finally administered the polygraph, he ran Kathy three times and decided she was making every effort to manipulate the results. Her chair was wired with a motion detector, so Holsing could tell she was tampering. People do this by squeezing their butt cheeks, tapping their toes, and tensing their legs. Kathy also changed her pitch and response time each question. And she was polygraphed as a witness to murder. In the end, Hulsing flat out said Kathy wasn't being truthful. Freeman got mad. He believed Kathy. By Hulsing's own assessment, Kathy had textbook manifestations of antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders. Some might venture so far as to say Kathy is a psychopath, a manipulative troublemaker void of real empathy or conscience. These people were far more predictable than they thought, and Hulsing's prediction? Kathy Wood will return with another story. Tom Freeman was getting really stressed out. Nobody believed Kathy's crazy story, but he could feel the murders were real. Everyone he linked into the investigation essentially discarded these women as crazy, dramatic, troublemaking lesbians. The county attorney was shitting on his case, his partner had doubts, and it was the butt end of jokes around the station. Now, the polygraph examiner, Holsing, said Kathy was lying. Freeman was fed up. He told Kathy, I'm done with your shit. You're not being honest, and I'm not going to help you anymore. 
Three days later, Kathy called him and said she'd been lying. It was October 27th. She came to the station and agreed to be recorded. She began telling an updated version of the Alpine Manor story. In some ways, she was evasive, painting herself out as an unwilling accomplice, and her memory for specifics seemed to come and go at all the right moments for Kathy. There were several consistent themes. The method of death, suffocation by washcloth, that Gwen was a domineering psycho who feasted on a macabre mix of sex and death, and lastly, Kathy reluctantly helped choose victims, and her key role was to be a lookout and as a cover-up conspirator. He tried to identify their motive and the murder acronym, but Kathy got really vague about that stuff. The number of victims went from six to eight. She thought the first victim was Marguerite, but couldn't quite remember. Her ability to be simultaneously detailed and wishy-washy was impressive. Well, I think a perfect explanation or example of how big of a psychopath she was. Oh, big time. You know. Yeah. Uh, Tom's partner, Roger Kaliniak, knew a con artist when he saw one, and Kathy Wood fit the bill. He wondered what she had to gain from this. Certainly not a clear conscience, as she displayed no sympathy whatsoever for the victims. Kaliniak suspected her motivation was revenge against Gwen or others. Every time Kaliniak spoke to Kathy, he felt like she was interviewing him, even though he was the one asking questions. Quote, When you talked with her, you felt as though you were talking to a shadow. Freeman brought the updated confession to his boss, Deputy Chief Bill Brown. Brown told Freeman... They are forever known as Chepity now. Chepity. (laughs) (laughs) Chepity Brown. What's your rank? Major, otherwise known as Chepity. Yeah, that's good. Deputy Brown told Freeman, quote, Chances are these things could have happened at Alpine... But I'm just not convinced. To Chief Brown, the woman's story seemed too contrived. It reminded him of a poorly written Stephen King novel riddled with plot holes. Still a punchline at the prosecutor's office, by mid-November, the case was going nowhere. Detective Freeman spoke with Kathy almost daily. Her stories went beyond the bizarre. She told him of the euphoric orgasms during post-murder lovemaking sessions in the days following the killing of Marguerite Chambers. Murder became their aphrodisiac. Sometimes, killing turned them on so much They had to do it in another room at Alpine Manor before their shift was over. Remember that time they didn't show up to pay their respects? Oh, come on. Now you know what they were doing. Okay, and also I have to say that Detective Freeman, his his relationship with Kathy is really crossing a line, I feel. Sure, it's it's, borderline, yep. The whole... Yeah, the whole police station taken aback by her stories of bed hopping, orgies, fistfights between women, and murder. This was unfamiliar territory for all these guys. Finally, Deputy Brown and Detective Freeman visited with the director of the state behavioral science section, Dr. Gary Kaufman. Kathy kept calling being a lesbian a lifestyle. When Freeman raided Gwen's trailer in Texas, he was expecting to find a wild sex pit full of dildos, lesbian literature, and porno. Dr. Kaufman... Stereotypes. Like, come on. Yes, no, really. Dr. Kaufman explained why there was none of that. He literally had to explain to these people that, you know, a gay relationship constitutes more than a sexual act, that it's a relationship just like heteros. 
Kaufman had more than a decade of criminal profiling experience. He was massively intrigued by the Alpine Manor story. He said, criminal pairing often occurs in narcissistic and antisocial personality disorders. Usually, one personality was dominant and manipulative, the other a more passive follower. Borderlines fell into that role and had intense personal relationships, undergoing frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. It was agreed they should re-polygraph Kathy Wood, but as a suspect instead of a witness. This test was conducted by legendary polygrapher John Palmatier. John believed the polygraph was an art and a science. He acted as a personal confessor and omniscient eye. Palmatier studied Eastern religions and experimental psychology. His voice was hypnotic. The interview room was fit for an executive, placing his guest in a massive stately chair while Palmatier sat in a small simple chair. Although the room gave no indication clients were being observed, Kaufman, Brown, and Freeman watched everything. The entirety of Freeman's case rested on this. Was Kathy Wood telling the truth about murders at Alpine Manor? During a three-hour session, she admitted to chronic lying, patient abuse, accessory and conspiracy to commit murder, criminal cover-up, and physical and sexual child abuse. Quote, I have a tendency when I get around children to be a child abuser. I just want to slap them. I can't stand kids, even Jamie. Do you feel like she's putting on a show at this point, though? Like, I don't know. We'll I see. Mean, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, yes, with her, it's all a show. Part of it's all a show for sure. And and she cried a lot. Don't I mean? Don't get me wrong. She's a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I, and I'm absolutely she abuses yeah. kids. Like I, yeah, I get it, but. Yeah. She cried a lot when discussing her personal traumas, but showed no sympathy for the victims. And so was that because it wasn't really murder or because Kathy was psychologically unable to feel that sympathy? Either way, the question remained, was Kathy telling the truth? After a painstaking 15-minute wait, Palmatier shared the results with Kathy. According to Palmatier's analysis, but mostly his judgment call because it was so close, Kathy Wood was telling the truth. She squealed with delight and told Palmatier, You're so cute! Thank you so much! Kathy Wood was still cheering for herself when Palmatier exited, but within moments, she totally snapped. A metamorphosis that saw her smile become a grimace, and her laughter a painful, weeping cry. He called it a true catharsis. She was crying like that because someone finally believed her. By the end of November, Catherine Brinkman revealed the investigation to the press to settle an old debt against Kathy. It put everything in a pressure cooker. Completely fair. Absolutely. The media attention brought out more witnesses. Lisa Lynch came in and told Freeman everything she knew, implicating both Gwen and Kathy. It was finally decided bodies had to be exhumed. On December 1st, Don Mayle finally returned calls to the Grand Rapids PD after seeing the Alpine Manor murders on the front page of the paper. More witnesses from the Alpine Manor circle came forward. Their statements were not consistent with Kathy Wood's self-portrait of timid innocence beneath the violent hand of Gwen Graham. One question he asked each witness, of the two, Kathy and Gwen, who is the most dominant? 
The answers were split. Many of the interviews produced more suspicion than hard evidence, although a persistent theme showed even if Freeman refused to see it. Kathy was the brains, Gwen was the muscle. Finally, on December 4th, 1989, 59 days after Ken Wood walked into Freeman's office, Kathy Wood and Gwen Graham were separately arrested for murder, the former still in Michigan, the latter down in Tyler, Texas. Kathy's last words to the arresting officers? You're not going to be mean to me, are you? Reporters were crawling all over the place now. Kathy's house, Ken's house, Alpine Manor, the owner of Alpine Manor, the alleged victim's houses. It was a circus. One by one, each potential victim's family was contacted. Eight in all. Several families reacted angrily. Others refused to believe, and some tried to be of help. What stood out to many was the murder acronym. It left families wondering if their deceased loved one was one of the letters. At some point, Police Chief Springer suggested the motive was a lesbian relationship. Television cameras converged on every gay bar in the area. The carousel closed. Media intertwined the sexual preference of the suspects with the sadistic behavior as if the two went hand in hand. On January 4th, after seeing the evidence and hearing testimony from numerous witnesses, the district judge decided it was sufficient enough to charge Kathy Wood for the murders of Edith Cook and Marguerite Chambers. Gwen Graham fought extradition from Texas, but eventually gave in when she felt like she was losing Heather Barriger's affection. Then she wanted to get back up the Grand Rapids as soon as she could. Gwen had over a dozen pictures of Heather covering her cell walls. She even laminated a picture of Heather so the two could shower together. Kathy ultimately agreed to testify against Gwen in an exchange for pleading guilty to second-degree murder, which did not carry a life sentence. Kathy took the stand at Gwen's preliminary hearing. She was dramatically efficient, appearing fragile, graceful, a picture of victimized innocence. Gwen killed to relieve her tension. The murders, she said, were supposed to solidify their lesbian love bond. When it was Kathy's turn to kill, she backed out while Gwen stayed the course. That was the reason Gwen dumped her and moved to Texas. On her final motivation to reveal this truth, Kathy said, quote, on her motivation to do the murders, excuse me, Kathy said, I thought that Gwen was the first person to ever love me, and I didn't want her to go away. I didn't want her to go away no matter what. I put myself before those patients. She told me she had to, and I didn't stop her. After Kathy's sensational testimony, the press finally had the motive behind the serial killings, a lesbian love bond. Can I just say, fuck the 80s, man. Like... Be better. In prep, Be better. Yeah. In, pre- in preparation of trial, your favorite prosecutor, Scheiber, got to know his star witness. He took Kathy out for supper publicly on four separate occasions. Years, what? Oh, yeah. Yep. Years later, he said, quote, Actually, she's a real nice person for a killer, I guess. Opening statements in the trial began on September 13th. Scheiber portrayed Kathy as a lonely, sad, and tragic woman who got put under the psycho spell of Gwen Graham. And Kathy was masterful as the star witness. 
the salacious tales of parties, fights, bondage, masochism, and murder was more than most people's ears could handle at this point in history. Kathy alleged the main reason she had to turn Gwen in was from the fear that Gwen would kill again, this time at a children's nursery where she was employed in Texas. Remember the story about the gun and Gwen's cooch? Kathy turned that against Gwen on the stand, making it sound like it was her who got that done to her. She turned everything against Gwen. Witnesses such as Angie Brozak, LaDonna Stearns, Lisa Lynch, and Tony Kubiak. The, all, he was a detective, right? Um, no, nope, that's Kaliniak. This was just another nope. one of the employees during the, from their it's Polish yep. names. I can't keep up with them. So, Polish? I think that was Polish. I don't know. What I they were all called as prosecution witnesses. However, they were ready to verbally destroy Kathy on the stand for the defense, but the defense didn't ask them any significant questions. Not one of them believed Gwen was the mastermind. Many of them didn't even fully believe the murders happened. And none of these witnesses would have put it past Kathy Wood to take revenge against Gwen this far. But none of that came out in court because the defense never asked. The last witness to be called was Heather Berger. Her testimony was the most damning because she claimed to be eternally in love with Gwen, yet was still willing to testify against her. Gwen took the stand in her own defense and got utterly destroyed. She was not intellectually or emotionally capable of withstanding the onslaught of questions. Gwen was contradictory and many of her answers just didn't make sense. When Heather's testimony was referenced during questioning, Gwen claimed she couldn't remember anything Heather said because she was too lost in Heather's beauty. The exhumed bodies of Marguerite Chambers and Edith Cook had no pathological evidence of suffocation. The autopsies could not establish a link. Concurrently, there was no overwhelming evidence the women died from natural causes. The coroner acknowledged if he didn't have conversations with Freeman Pryor, he never would have suspected anything unusual during the exam. Furthermore, the alleged souvenirs, an anklet, a brooch, a balloon, a sock, never turned up. Brooch. It's a brooch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Don. I love you. I'm sorry. Yeah. But several witnesses alleged to having seen the items. Public defender James Piazza believed Gwen was innocent. There was zero scientific evidence of murder. By Kathy Wood's own admission, she didn't visibly witness a single murder. Piazza attempted to paint Kathy as a jealous liar, Gwen her sacrificial lamb. But it wasn't enough. Gwen was found guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and one count conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. She was torn from the courtroom, screaming for Heather. On November 2nd, 1989, Graham was sentenced to six life terms without the possibility of parole. She was 25 years old. Kathy was sentenced to 20 to 40 years. She was 26. Although it's believed Kathy and Gwen were likely responsible for as many as 12 murders, there were ultimately five official victims of record. Mae Mason, 79, Edith Cook, 98, Marguerite Chambers, 60, Myrtle Luce, 95, and Belle Burkhardt, 74. I mean this in no, in no disrespect to the victims, but those two were clearly no uh, geniuses because that's one, two, three M's, one B, and an E. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. So their acronym bullshit is not, it's not good. And well, and people later complained how investigators never did their homework on the truth and ultimately just took Kathy's word for many of the finer details that made the murder possible, if they really happened at all. Many families were left wondering, what did they leave their loved ones to? How many failed attempts happened? How many horrifying nights did our loved one lay there waiting to die? There was so much guilt and heartache from the family, and it cannot be overstated enough that many of the residents at Alpine Manor arrived there only after families exhausted all of their options. For the most part, these victims weren't just abandoned and forgotten there. For months after the trial, psychologists studied the relationship of Kathy and Gwen. In the anthology book, Unmasking the Psychopath, Dr. Robert D. Hare proposed a 20-point checklist for the psychopathic personality. Kathy Wood overwhelmingly fit the criteria. She was a high-functioning psychopath with narcissistic personality disorder. These individuals have a distinct ability to, quote, ascertain the needs of those around them and then exploit those needs for their own gratification or gain. And so she was 26 when she was found guilty. Can you imagine if she would have waited... Can you imagine if with life, with some life experience, Ugh, right, and, and no. honing that quote unquote How craft. How bad she could have gotten. Right? Like it, it, yeah, if she went at 40, like that would be awful. Dr. Dr. Kaufman said it was extremely psychopathic to sacrifice yourself to bring someone else down. Many of the criminal psychologists who studied the case afterward theorized Kathy became vulnerable when Ken turned when Ken turned her in, so she embarked on her own high-stakes game, controlling all of the early input and information, and she was able to perfectly project her own personality onto Gwen. There was evidence of attacks for months after Gwen's departure, and all those marked for death in Kathy's story, Heather, Angie, Don Mayo, those were all enemies of Kathy, people Kathy feuded with, not Gwen. A deeper psychological uh, analysis later determined Gwen had little emotional or intellectual depth with primitive morality, lacking in the ability to produce sophisticated, empathetic, or intelligent thoughts. By expert determination, she was incapable of orchestrating, even conceptualizing the killings. The perfect pawn for Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood was first eligible for release in 2005. She began petitioning every year thereafter eight times. Victims' families made a pact in the beginning to vigilantly work to ensure she was never released early. On January 16, 2020, Kathy Wood was released on parole <gasps> after serving 30 years in prison. No. She was Two a- things. How was she released and? The second thing is, how was 1986 30 years ago? But still. She. Oh my, oh my gosh. Do not skip over this. I realize that we are almost yeah, two hours, but she's holy out there. shit. She's out there, bro. And she was a model inmate that did her time. Well, of course she was. She's a narcissistic piece of shit. Of course she is. And she is out. And I called her that and she could listen to this. Yeah. And. Not only that, at this point, she's actually completely free of state of supervision. Course, no papers. She's out. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to leave you with this. Ken Wood long argued that his wife shouldn't have had to serve that long 
because it was more time than her potential victims had left on this earth. And she didn't really do it anyways. Gwen did. Should we pass the vomit bucket around for that? Sources for this episode of... You got... I don't want to cut you short there. What do you think about... What? Ken would... Ken would do anything for Kathy? Oh, I got nothing. I got nothing. I will say... I've got one thing. You know what? This is... There, a couple episodes ago, you asked me who the boogeyman is, right? Like five episodes sure. ago, probably. Yeah. People like that. It's not, not the husband, Kathy. Because those are people walking among us. Those are the people that are in charge of our parents in a, in a nursing home. Those are the people that we could be left with. I, she, like that, that. I don't. Uh, that piece of garbage. Yeah. It, that is the boogeyman. Vile. Because it's not it's not the guy lurking in you know in you know all black and a ski mask. I mean, probably in some cases, but like that that is what keeps me up at night. Is how do I protect myself from that? How do I protect myself from that for my my children from that? Right? Because we we could all be vulnerable to that type of narcissistic behavior. The strongest of people are vulnerable to it because it is a manipulation unlike any other. Yeah. I, I, I mean, she's, for me, I think she's top three most vile people that we've covered on Midwest Murder. I've only maybe got two people that I think are more vile than her. I, it, it is a toss up for Belle Gunness and her a hundred years apart. Sources. Wow. The, pr- the primary source for this episode is the book Forever in Five Days by Lowell Coffeo. The book is a work of fact. It is not a fictionalized version of events at all. He poured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours into research, interviewing everybody related to the case, I think, except for Kathy. Also, the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers and the Lethal Lovers article by Hannah Payne, the timeline from UPI.com and PeopleofHistory.com. Midwest Murder is hosted by Jonah Lanto and Don Palumbo and produced by the Good Talk Network. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whichever platform you find Midwest Murder. Tag us at Midwest Murder or hashtag Midwest Murder. Again, this episode brought to you in part by Premier Chiropractic. Experience the difference with Premier Chiropractic. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.